Did you have a good Easter? Did you enjoy uh, the Easter weekend here at Forestbrook? Could you give your appreciation to everybody who participated, all of the worship team, Jeff Knight. What an awesome, what an awesome weekend and an awesome experience it was. And uh, so thank you. Thank you to everybody who had a part to play in that, whether you were praying, whether you were serving, whatever your role was. Um, Jesus was glorified. We had a full house. He was worshipped. His word was shared. And it was just a wonderful morning. So you might be wondering, where do we go from here? How do, you come, how do you come back from Easter to kind of like the Sunday after Easter? Uh, well, our women go away on retreat, or a bunch of them did anyway. So, um, and I, I, my wife had signed up, Chelsea and Shirley are both up at the retreat, and Shirley had signed up for the axe throwing. So I was, I was kind of nervous. I was at a conference, a discipleship conference in Waterloo yesterday, and, uh, and I was doing a presentation. And just before I was ready to start my presentation, um, Shirley texted me to tell me that they, she was on her way to go to the axe throwing. So I shared that with the group and I said, you can believe me that when, I come, when she comes home, the house is going to be spotless, right? <clears throat> if she's practiced her axe throwing, working on a little passive aggressiveness there, uh, the house is going to be pristine. So uh, that's what I'm doing right after I finish here today. <clears throat> um, hey, but we, we're, we're jumping right back into Ephesians. Uh, and for the next... You know, a couple of months as we finish off this ministry year, we're looking at Ephesians 5 and 6. And what I wanted to do today was I really want to pause before we do that. We have a baptism Sunday next, next Sunday, and then we're jumping right in to Ephesians 5 and 6, which really deal with the ethics of the Christian life. And ethics simply means the rules of conduct, the things that are expected of us as Christians. And I want to unpack that, but more than that, I want, to, I want to make sure that we understand what the key is to Christian ethics before we get into breaking it down verse by verse. I had a professor in seminary, a preaching professor, who taught us that when you're studying Scripture and looking at Scripture, you have to make sure that you understand what is the subject that the author is dealing with and what is the object, what is he saying about that subject. Because our verses, our Bible is in chapters and verse, we often pull out pieces of it and we study it pieces at a time, a passage here, a passage there, a section here, a section there, and we develop our ideas around that passage. And sometimes we have that right and sometimes we don't. Because these are letters that are written, written to groups of people, often in Paul's epistles, where he has a subject and he has a main idea he's trying to get across. And what he's saying about that idea is often in the details of what he's saying. And so I want to make sure that as we get into looking at the household codes and looking at the things that it says in Ephesians 5 and 6, that we understand what is subject and what is object what is principle and what is practice. And so today we're going to lay down a key principle in understanding Christian ethics um, before we get into that. We uh, left off by identifying the bullseye for discipleship. And we mentioned Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, where we were talking in the series before we got into celebrating Easter, we talked about walking it out and beginning to, to understand what it meant to walk out the Christian faith. And we looked at this, these two verses in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where it says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And I said, there's the bullseye. That's the bullseye of discipleship. 
discipleship. That's, where, that's what we're aiming for, to live a life of love like Christ, to be imitators of Christ and live a life of love like Christ, but sacrificial love. Because it's not just a life of love, it's a life of love where Christ gave himself for us. And that's the bullseye of discipleship. So I want to begin today with this assertion, and it is this, that the essential of Christian ethics is this, the imitation of Christ flows from our identity in Christ. The imitation of Christ flows from our identity in Christ. Now, we've, we've said, we've, we've, we started this series back in September, and we spent time in the fall uh, before Christmas going through Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. Remember, this is a letter, and for the first half of the letter, Paul is simply trying to help this, this Ephesians church understand who they are in Christ. Fully half the letter is on their identity who they are in Christ. They are called, chosen, and adopted. They are raised with Christ. They are made alive with Christ. They are seated with Christ in the heavenlies now. And not through anything that they have done, but completely through God's goodness and grace because he loved them. Then he gets on to what that looks like and how you live that out practically. But it's so important that we understand that identity comes first. That, that the, the behaviors, the patterns, the, the changes in our life flow out of that identity. He stresses that identity because that identity is key. The identity is the thing that fuels the change in the behavior. So in all, the, the bottom line of Christian ethics is this, the imitation of Christ flows from our identity in Christ. This is the organizing principle of all Christian ethics. And it is Paul's message in all of his epistles. In all of his letters to the churches, it is the same message over and over and over again. Your, your, your identity in Christ leads to the imitation of Christ. It's what Paul in our New Testament reinforces over and over and over again. Now for us to really grasp this, I want to go to a key passage. And this is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24. And this is a passage that kind of hinges this whole thing that Paul is saying and doing in this letter. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 20, he says... That is not the way you learned Christ. And he's talking about you know, the way the Gentiles live and the futility of their thinking and, and giving into all their sensual desires and, and, and following after darkness because they don't know any better. They don't have anything else in their life. And he says, that's not the way that you learned Christ. And that word for learn in the Greek is, is the root word for disciple. He's saying you weren't discipled that way. For surely you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to lay aside your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and being renewed in the spirit of your minds to clothe yourselves with the new self, created in the image of God in true righteousness and purity. The new self. He uses the imagery of, of undressing and dressing. And you undress the old and you dress the new. 
And the, the tenses in the Greek here are important because the undressing and the dressing are both in the aorist sense, tense, they're past, they've happened. You've taken off the old and you've put on the new, that's done. The old man is gone and now you are a new self. But the renewing of the mind, that is in the present tense. That is an ongoing, continuing process. So the change has happened. If you are in Christ, the old man is gone. And you are the new self. And now we grow into the new self through the renewing of our minds. As the Spirit works with us in our minds to, to begin to bring out of us this person who is the new self, this person who lives in the imitation of Jesus. Who lives in the imitation of Jesus. As we grow into the reality of our new selves in Christ, the image of God is more and more evident in our lives. And that's the way this works. And that's why the new self is so important. Because the new self, that identity, is is the key to to it all. And I want to kind of demonstrate that and illustrate that as we go through our time together this morning. Here's the way Christian ethics work. That graph is up there now. So, if we look at the new self and begin with the new self, with this, this sense of who I am in Jesus Christ, who God has made me to be, who God has called me to be, who God says I am, that I'm called, I'm chosen, I'm adopted. We sang about not being merely human, being made for, for so much more. We are the more. If we are in Christ, we are the more. We are already the more, already born from above, already with the Holy Spirit, already the new self, already living eternal life now. That's the new self. And as I've said a number of times, you know, do we believe it? Because if we believe it, we will begin to live like it. And it will begin to come out of us. And it will begin to take shape in our lives. But if we don't believe it, we won't. And if we don't believe it, if we don't have that sense of new self, then two, one of two things can happen to us in our life in Christ. One is because we can all conform to the image of Christ. We can all become good Christians. We can all come to church. We can all stop doing certain things and start doing other things. We can all change our behaviors. We can change our attitudes. We can change things. We can do a lot to conform to the image of Christ without embracing the new self in Christ. And when we do that, one of two things happens. One is we become self-righteous. We become self-righteous. Because we can ma- we've mastered certain things in our lives. We've put certain sins behind ourselves. We've grown in knowledge. We've grown in our understanding. Right? We're, we're, we're climbing up the Christian ladder. And we get to a place on the ladder where we start looking at those that are, that are beneath us on the ladder. And we begin to think of ourselves as being better than them. As knowing more than them as being somehow further along than them. And maybe we become judgmental. Maybe we become unloving, uncaring. 
we become pharisaical. Even accidentally, Yvonne gave me a book um, by, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Pastor Osborne. I can't, I can't remember his first name. But anyways, he wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees. He's the same guy who wrote Sticky Church. He wrote, he wrote a book called Accidental Pharisees, and it's all about this process. It's about how, how we can go off track. If, if we forget the key thing, if we forget what it's all about, if we forget that it's a new identity, and all of this flows out of that new sense of self, yeah, we can become accidental Pharisees. We don't intend for it to be the case. We don't set out to become that, but we do become that. Why? Because we're not living our life like Jesus, a life of love, a life of giving ourselves for others, which is the foundation of the new self. The other thing that can happen is we can just get really discouraged. We can just get really discouraged. We can try to live the Christian life. We can try to do it. We can hear a sermon and say, I got to do that. Or we could be in our small group and hear our small group leader say, or discussion or whatever, or listen to WDCX. We could hear something on the, on the radio. Somebody could say something. We could be convicted by it. And we could say, I got to try and do that. And then when we don't end up being able to do that, whatever it is, we can get discouraged. Even some, even feel like giving up. Or we try harder or we take on more, or we begin to live a double life where we hide our sin and we tuck it away and when we come to church, we make sure that nobody, nobody knows. But inside, if we're honest with ourselves in our struggles, we, we know that we're, we're not measuring up. We're not measuring up. And that can be our experience, our life in Christ, and we normalize it and we say, well, I guess this is just the way it is. And I'm here to tell you it's not. It's not. Neither of these, neither of these two detours are what God wants for you and me when we live out of our new self. What God says, what Jesus says is, is God, he says, my father wants you to bear much fruit. I want you to live a fruitful life, not a frustrated life, a fruitful life. And I've given you everything you need to live a fruitful life. I have given you everything that you need. I've set you free. I've given you my spirit. There is nothing holding you back. It's all out there for you. Let's go change the world. That's what God wants for his children. And the way that we achieve that, the way that we attain that, is through this passage right here in Ephesians chapter 4. It's by realizing that we've taken off the old man, we have put on the new man, and now we need to live out of the person of the new self. Out of the person of the new self. This conference that I was at was all about discipleship. And when Paul Lamb was here at our Catalyst event, he said something very, very similar. The speaker said yesterday, he said, discipleship, discipleship is not the passing on of information. It is the fostering of transformation. You are not here to learn about Jesus. We don't study the Bible to learn about Jesus. We don't go to small groups to learn about Jesus. 
Discipleship is to learn to imitate Jesus. It's to learn to live like him. It's to learn to be like him. That's what it means to imitate Jesus and to live a life of love. Remember that basic principle that the imitation of Christ flows from our own identity in Christ. Mark Strauss is a New Testament professor at Bethel Seminary, and he writes this. He says, the ultimate application of Scripture is the imitation of Christ. To think God's thoughts after him, to walk in the power of the Spirit, and to live a transformed life where right actions naturally flow from right character. I love that quote. I love the way he's put that. And that's in a book all about how to study the Bible and how to, how to do hermeneutics. And I love the way he distills it. He drills it right down to this basic principle. And he says, the ultimate application of Scripture is the imitation of Christ. That's why we do it. That's why we preach the word on Sundays. That's why we study the word together. That's why we share the word together. Because through the word, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are being transformed into the image of Christ. And if that's not happening, we're studying the word incorrectly. We are studying it amiss. What does the imitation of Christ look like? Ephesians 5, 1-2 says, Be imitators of Christ and live a life of love, just as he did and gave himself for us. There is no selfish in the new self. There is no selfish in the new self. The new self is a life of love like Jesus And this is not the golden rule. This is not do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the Jesus rule. Do unto others as he has done unto you. That's what it says. Live a life of love like Jesus who gave himself for us. We are imitators of Jesus when we live a life of love and give ourselves away for others. That is the ultimate ethic of the Christian life. To live a life of love and to give ourselves away for others just like Jesus did. That's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says. That's what Paul teaches. That's what our New Testament message is. We perhaps haven't always had it. I haven't had it always in that sharp of a focus or relief in my own life. I've let my Christian life be about all kinds of other things over the years. But when we began to pay attention to the Holy Spirit and listen to the Holy Spirit and seek to what it is to be led by and listen to the Holy Spirit, I love where the Holy Spirit has led us right here to Jesus and living as imitators of Jesus. That's where he's brought us. There's no selfish in the new self. This is not new. I am not sharing with you anything that I've made up. Where's my notes here? Um, Thomas Akempis, 550 years ago, wrote a classic book called The Imitation of Christ. It's a classic in the Christian 
uh, anthology of, uh, of literature. And in that book, he says this, God weighs more the love out of which a man works than the work he does. He does much who loves much. He does much who does a thing well. He does well who serves the community rather than his own will. Oftentimes there seems to be love, but it is rather a fleshly mind because natural inclination, self-will, hope of reward, and desire of our own interest will seldom be absent. He who has true and perfect love seeks himself in nothing, but only desires in all things the glory of God. That was 550 years ago the campus wrote that. It's always been the ethic of Christianity. It's always been what we are called to. We might be rediscovering it for our time, but it's always been there. It has always been there. And lest we think that this is not what the Apostle Paul taught, we only need to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And read the first few verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that reminds us that love is the foundation of it all. That we could, if we set anything else ahead of, of love, of learning to love like Jesus, we're going to miss the mark. We could have all knowledge, he says. We could sacrifice ourselves. We could do all kinds of things, give our bodies to be burned. We could speak in tongues. We could be spiritual supergiants. But if we miss love, if we miss living out of the new self, the self who is Christ in us, the agape love, that first fruit of the Holy Spirit, if we miss that, we miss the mark. That's what Paul says. Paul says that even more than that, he says it profits you nothing. You're wasting your time. That's what he says. Any other Christian ethic that doesn't underscore and emphasize that we live a life of love like Jesus lives and we give ourselves for others like Jesus did because we are a new creation in him. Falls short. I have not always understood this. This kind of love, this kind of new self is not who I am. When I was asked to become senior pastor of this congregation almost two years ago, I, I, I said I'm praying for love because I'm not the most loving person. I'm not a handholder. I'm not the most compassionate person. I'm much more of a doer. I'm task-oriented and I have a temper. And none of those things are loving. I've battled it my whole life and struggled with it my whole life. Because I know that that's just me, and that's not Jesus. And so anytime I reflect that to you, understand that that's just me being an idiot. And that's just me being wrong. And you're just getting me at that point, and not Jesus in me, or Jesus through me. But I can tell you this. I can tell you this. When God got my attention and I began to search and understand and seek what it is to be led by and filled with the Holy Spirit, God gave me that desire to be more like Jesus. 
He gave me that desire to realize that I could be more like Jesus. He gave me that desire to understand how I could be more like Jesus. And for a while I went out and I tried to be more like Jesus. And then he said, no, Kev, that's not the way. Because you don't have what it takes to be more like Jesus. You need to focus on me. The author of Hebrews says, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. If I keep my eyes fixed on him, he will bring himself out of me. He will bring himself out of me. He will change me to be more like him. But my eyes need to be fixed on him. On him. And on pursuing him. And on loving him. And the Holy Spirit just gives you that bullseye focus. Here, Kev, this is where your life is going. This is what your life is all about. I wish I could tell you that in the last few years I've become a super saint and a super spiritual giant. I haven't. I'm learning to love. I'm still the same boneheaded person I've always been and love doesn't come easily to me. But God is softening and changing my heart. And I wanted to give you a few examples. I mentioned that there's no self, no selfish in the new self. That we are to live a life for others. So I want you to think about this. We're going to go to communion in a few minutes. But I want us to think about who are the others in your life? Who are your others? Who are your others that you are called to give yourself for? They may not, you know, some of them come to mind right off the bat. You know, we're going to get into Ephesians chapter 5 in a few weeks, and we're going to talk about husbands and wives. They're, they are others. Because we're going to go into that category of the households. We're going to talk about fathers and children. We're going to talk about slaves and slave owners. We're going to talk about one another. We're going to talk about, about others. And how we are to love others as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. You're going to see it reflected and what he has to say to husbands, what he has to say to wives, what he has to say to fathers, what he has to say to children. The ethic runs through it all. We could expand that. We could take a few minutes to do that today. Who are your others? I want to tell you of a few of mine that I've discovered in the last few years. You all know Mike and Allison Wilson who were here a few weeks ago and gave a message um, and shared with this, their journey with uh, their son, James Michael, and his disability. Some time ago, uh, I can't remember what exactly the circumstances were. It was either something I wrote in a blog or something I said in a message. But I, I said something about, um, you know, someone in, in Scripture, either, either the blind man or, or the deaf man or whatever, and I got an email from Allie. And Allie kind of, you know, took me to task for that. And she said, you know, Kevin, she said, um, when, you, when you do that, when you use that language, when you use it that way, even, you, even in the scriptures, you, you actually, you, you, you diminish the person with the disability. They're not a disabled person. They're a person with a disability. See them as a person first, Kevin. Now understand, I could have kind of gotten all up in myself about that and said, you know, I'm the senior pastor. Who do you think you are? That would have been wrong. 
And I am grateful to say this, the thought never crossed my mind. The Holy Spirit was already working on me, and I heard that, and I thought, yeah, there's, there's truth in that. I can do that. I can change the way I speak. I can change the way I read the Bible. I can, I can change that. I can be respectful of that other person in my life and their sensitivity. I can do that for them. And I've made a commitment to do that and try and do that. A little while ago, somebody came into my office, fairly new to the church, wanting to kind of know about who we were as a church and what made us tick and all those kinds of things. And uh, they're a member of, of a visible minority. And they came and they said, you know, um, just trying to find out whether there's a place for, for me and my family in this church. I noticed there's not many people uh, my color in this congregation. And they wanted to know about our congregation and how we felt about, um, you know, ethnic diversity. And, and you know, we live in, in Ajax or we're, play, we're planted in Ajax, which is the most diverse community in the Durham region. 35% of the Ajax population are members of visible minorities and I told him I said well you know what we we are we have a lot more people in our congregation who are who are representative of that community than we used to and then they said this they said well how do you and and leaders you know plan for those of us who come from different backgrounds who who aren't kind of white Europeans and and how are you what's what's your strategy for helping us feel a part of all of this. Because I want to feel a part of it. And I heard that. And I could have got all up in myself and said, who do you think you are? You're brand new to the church. I've been here for 17 years. This is the way we do things, like it or lump it. That would have been wrong. And thankfully, that didn't enter my head either. But I listened and I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, there's something here. Yeah, I, we, can, we can do that. There, there are others in our congregation who are not like me, who don't have my preferences or my background or my history. How can I make sure that they feel like they belong? I'll take that on. I'll take that on board. I'll see what I can do about that. A little over a year ago, we had a funeral here for Anita Marshall. Her husband, Sandra, is transgendered. He attended our congregation for many, many years. At the funeral, he took me around and introduced me to all kinds of people. And he kept saying, this is my pastor, Kevin. This is my pastor, Kevin. And after the funeral, he came to me and he said, it was so great for me to be able to introduce you to people as my pastor. He says, because you are my pastor. And he said this. He said, I know I can never attend Forest Brook. But it's great to have you as my pastor. That broke my heart. That broke my heart. That he feels like he could not attend and be in our midst. Now maybe I don't know what I think about all of that and how to process all of that and, and maybe you don't either. But I want to figure it out. I want to figure it out because he is an other for whom I need to lay down my life. Just as Jesus would. 
Because there was nobody around Jesus who felt they couldn't hang out with him. And our dear Donna Moss, God lover, what a blessing she is to our congregation. She never ceases to remind me and the other staff and all of you when she has the opportunity to think of our seniors, to think of our newcomers, and to think of those who are alone and lonely in our congregation. Who are your others? Who are your others that you are going to be Jesus too. They're all around us. You want to know who your others are? Anybody but you. Anybody but you. Everybody but you. I'd like to invite the worship team to come up. I remembered, Jeff, and the uh, ushers as we move into communion. I'm going to come back after communion with one more thought on this subject. But let's stop at the table for a second. First Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this. He says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? We get that. We're going to take the cup. We're going to take the bread. We are having fellowship with Jesus. We are having communion with Jesus. Beautiful, wonderful. We all, we long for it. We desire it. It is the core of our identity. We love it. He doesn't stop there. Listen to this. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body because we all partake of the one loaf. Wow. You belong. You belong at this table. And so does everybody else. Isn't that great? You, you and I, we belong at this table and so does everybody else. It takes nothing away from what Jesus has done for you that others take of this table and give thanks for what he's done for them. We are one loaf, one body. Yeah, we're many. But here we're one. So let us take and let us make room for others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, wow. Thank you. Thank you just um, for your words. Thank you for the table. Um, Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all that this means. Holy Spirit, could you just wash over us, flood through us, allow, allow 
this message of, of who we are in you to sink so, so deeply into our being. As Paul says, that we would know the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of your love. It's so crucial, so critical that we know who we are in you because of what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, make it real. No more chasing after ghosts. As we come to the table today, bless the cup, bless the bread. May we have fellowship with you, Lord Jesus, and with one another. Teach us to be imitators of you. For in your name we pray. Amen. So the final thought that I want to share with us on this subject takes us back to the Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 24 passage, where he says, This is not the way you've learned in Christ. For surely you've heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to lay aside your former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and being renewed in the spirit of your minds, to clothe yourselves with the new self created in the image of God in true uprightness and purity. And the thing I want us to recognize is that the you in these passages is plural. This is a community text. Paul is writing this letter to a church. And he's saying, all of you, this is what the house of God should look like. This is what the people of God must look like. This is how you live out what it is to be the people of God. This passage isn't just for you individually or me individually. It's for all of us. It's for this house. It's for this place, Forestbrook Community Church. And our desire is to be a people who reflect this sacrificial love. A congregation, a people, a local church that has set its sight on living out the Christian ethic of living a life of love like Jesus and giving ourselves up for others. If that were an arrow in a quiver and I had a bow, I'd be shooting it at that that bullseye. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we're headed for. That's what our heart's desire is for. May God make it so. Amen.